At Gospel Community Church, our mission is to know the Bible, share life with others, and bring hope to our city and the world. You're listening to the Gospel Community Church Sermons Podcast, where we go through books of the Bible, verse by verse and line by line, to hear the truth that God's Word has to encourage, discipline, and bless us in our daily lives. Morning, how we doing? You guys enjoying 1 Corinthians so far? Good, good. Well, we're going to be continuing on. Uh, For those of you who don't know me, uh, my name is Kurt McDonald. I am uh, one of the pastors here at the church, uh, and it is my great privilege uh, to bring to you God's perfect and precious word this morning. May he add his his blessings to it. We've been going through Corinthians uh, for the last couple of weeks, and um, if, if you don't know, that's generally what we do here. We preach straight through books of the Bible, line by line, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, uh, because we believe in the power of God's Word, and we believe that God's Word has something to say to us every time we come to it. Amen? You believe that? Amen. So that, that's why we do that, and we're continuing on in our book. And, and what we discovered about this great book, the, the book of Corinthians, this letter written to the church in Corinth, is... Knowing where Corinth is is actually very vital to us to understand the meaning of this book. And so we we said that Corinth is situated on an isthmus, fancy word you can impress your friends with, it's situated on an isthmus that connects northern Greece and southern Greece, and it's right smack dab in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. And so if you were going from north to south or south to north, you're going to go through Corinth. If you're going east to west or west to east, no matter which direction you were going, you're probably going through Corinth, which meant this was a bustling, busy, very vibrant seaport town, and all of the people there, how about this, Corinth was the type of place that you would go to if you wanted to make something of yourself. Like uh, the, the entrepreneurs went to Corinth because of all the business and all the trade. All the businessmen went to Corinth because of all the trade. You, you, you had businessmen and entrepreneurs and, and tradesmen and all these people kind of gathered here. And so it was very wealthy. It was multicultural. And that is the context into which the Apostle Paul is writing this letter. And the big problem with Corinth is that Corinth was obsessed with money. Corinth was obsessed with power. Corinth was obsessed with influence. And it was certainly obsessed with sex. And that is the context into which Paul is writing this letter to this church. And there was a great call on this church there in Corinth because of how it was situated. The the church in Corinth, like every church, is called by God to to interact or to be with the culture, to engage the culture with the gospel, yet live holy lives. It's got to be both, church family. We at Gospel Community Church, just like the church in Corinth, just like every church everywhere, we are called to engage the culture with the gospel, yet live a holy life. The, the problem is, usually what happens in the church is, if you're really good at one, you're not so good at the other. What do I mean? I mean, churches that are great at engaging the culture end up becoming like the culture and therefore not living holy lives. And those churches that are great at living holy lives end up pulling back and secluding themselves 
us for no more, shut the door, and, and they're not engaging the culture with the gospel. And so what was happening at the church in Corinth is they, it's not as if they were living holy lives and they had secluded and pulled themselves back. On the contrary, the church in Corinth was, was very, very worldly. They were engaging the culture with the gospel, but they were acting just like the culture that they were from and just like the culture that they were, that they were in. And so the overarching issue that Paul is addressing in chapter 1 is divisions in the church that are resulting from these people who are incredibly prideful. Again, they're the entrepreneurs. They're the business professionals. They're wealthy. They're good-looking. They're in a happening place at a happening time, and they're filled with pride, and that's causing divisions in the church. You can, you can almost imagine the people in the church in Corinth saying something like this. You know what? We can really sell the gospel. You know what I mean? If, if we're, if we're going to you know, get the culture to become Christian, we can really sell the gospel. You know? We're going we're, we're gonna to get a nice building. We're, we're going to get an amazing band. The band's going to play. We're, we're going to have top-notch lights, sound, and we're going to get somebody on stage who's attractive and, and handsome and eloquent, and we're really going to sell this thing. You can imagine them saying that. And so what the Apostle Paul is doing in this particular section of text He's taking them down a peg or two. You ever been taken down a peg or two? He, he is taking them down. He is gently yet firmly telling them to get over themselves. He is gently but firmly reminding them that it's not about selling the gospel. See, they, they were so desperate for the people in their culture to accept them because they wanted their egos to be fed. They, they, wanted, they, they wanted them to, to, to accept them and to think that they were cool. And the Apostle Paul's going, you don't understand. They're not going to accept the message of the cross. It's foolishness to them. The only way they're going to accept the message of the cross is if God has called them. That's it. So if you want the world to love you and accept you and think you're cool, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. And so that, that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is going to do. Just look at verse 10 really quickly. He says, verse 10 in chapter 1, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, that you be of one mind and the same mind, the same judgment. He's trying to get all of these prideful people that think they've got it all together. He's trying to get them all back on the same page, united in the church so that they can engage the culture with the gospel and yet still live holy lives. He's trying to get them all back on the same page. He's trying to get rid of that pride that's going on. So listen, if you're into big ideas, here's the, here's the big idea uh, of our text today, uh, our text day again is 18 through 25. Here's the big idea. Jesus does it all. You bring nothing to the table, yet we are united with the wisdom and the power of the cross. Praise him. Now, now you might say, uh, Pastor Kirk, that sounds a lot like what you said two weeks ago. That's because it is. That's because it, it is because the Apostle Paul is still driving this same issue. He's still pushing this same idea because these Corinthians, these prideful, entrepreneurial, handsome, wealthy Corinthians think that they've got it all together. They think they know what they're doing. They think they can sell the gospel. And what he's saying is, no, 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 you bring nothing to the table. Well, as a matter of fact, you do bring something to the table. You bring your messed upness to the table. You bring your sin to the table. You bring your anxiety to the table. You bring your weakness to the table. That's what you bring to the table. The truth is Jesus does it all. We bring nothing to the table. But there's a really exciting part that even though 
We don't, Jesus does it all. We don't bring anything to the table, yet we are still filled with power that comes from the cross, wisdom that comes from the cross, and so we should praise him, not ourselves. That's what, that's what the Apostle Paul is, is getting at. Jesus does it all. Jesus comes to earth. Jesus puts on human flesh. Jesus lives the perfect life that we could never live. Jesus dies the death that we should have died in our place for our sins. Jesus sends the Holy Spirit to to reawaken us, to, to resurrect our spiritual deadness and give us spiritual life. And he empowers us through the power of his cross to live for him. Jesus does it all. Jesus does it all. Okay, that's me. I'm, I'm done. I'm done preaching, y'all. I got I to gotta get to the text and show you that that's what the text says. Okay, that's, that's my job this morning. So let's go ahead and dive in. Are y'all ready to get to the text yet? Okay, let's get it. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 says this, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Church family, this verse is rich. This verse is packed full of stuff, and I want to preach the whole sermon on verse 18, but I can't. We got, we got to get through this section, so let me, let me calm down a little bit and get to my notes. Here we go. He begins by saying, for the word of the cross is folly. Far too often, we, we look at the cross and we're not shocked by it. We're not, we don't see it for what it is. I mean, how many of us grew up in the church? Okay, most, most of us grew up in the church, which means you went to Sunday school where well, your Sunday school teacher told you that Jesus died on a cross. Then, you know, you went to your granny's house for, for you know, Sunday supper, and your granny told you that Jesus died on the cross, and you, you stood in church, and you sang songs about a bloody cross. But when we, and, and the problem with that is, yes, that, that's great. You need to know that. But the problem is we become desensitized to the foolishness of the cross. We become desensitized to a first century Galilee and peasant being beaten to a bloody pulp and nailed to a Roman crossbar. It's disgusting. It's horrifying to think of and to look upon. As a matter of fact, in in Roman society, they said that polite Roman society should never even discuss crucifixion. It, It shouldn't be discussed in polite Roman society. As a matter of fact, if you were a Roman citizen, it was illegal for you to be crucified. They didn't crucify Roman citizens. They crucified the worst of the worst. They crucified insurrectionists. They crucified the worst type of criminals. And it was done in a public spectacle with the aim and the intent not only to kill, but to humiliate, to shame. That's what the whole thing is. But the problem is that those of us who grew up in the church, we're just desensitized to it. We have have crosses on our earrings, crosses on our necklace, a cross on our lapel. And, and And it's just normal. I mean, again, think about it. What if... What if I came in and, and I had a noose hanging around my neck? What, what if I had a, a picture of an electric chair on my shirt and, and, and you said, uh, Pastor Kirk, uh, we need to talk. What's up, man? I said, oh, I'm, I'm celebrating the execution of somebody that you've never heard of from a place that you've never been to. <laughs> that, that's foolishness, right? Do you see what he's saying? Look at verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make good sense. It's hard. It's hard for them to imagine. As a matter of fact, even when Jesus was explaining to the disciples that he's going to be crucified, that he's going to die, they didn't get it either. The disciples. Okay, y'all don't believe me. Matthew 16, 21 through 22. Just listen to this. 
From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And on the third day raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. They didn't get it. It was folly to them. They didn't understand. To, to get in the mind of, of, a, of a Jewish person in that day that the Messiah was going to die was a total oxymoron. It, it's like saying uh, he's a married bachelor. It, it doesn't make any sense. A dead Messiah is no Messiah at all. They didn't get it. it it's it's utter craziness to them. But, but look at what he says next. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us. Do you, you, do you see how he's, he's trying to get them unified? He's trying to get them back together. Again, from our text last week, you've got these little groups. I'm of Paul. I'm of Cephas. I'm of Christ. There's, there's these little factions within the church. And he's trying to get everybody back on the same page and realize what they're actually united in. Not their giftedness, not their attractiveness, not their holiness. What they're united in is the bloody cross of Christ. If you're, if you're taking notes, the bloody cross atop a hill called Calvary unites all Christians everywhere. And particularly, it unites them in the local church. That's what unites us, church family. That's why as, as we, as Gospel Community Church, as we strive to be a multicultural, multi-generational church that puts the gospel on display, the only way that we're ever going to be united, the only way we're ever going to be together as, as black people and white people and Hispanic people with all different cultural backgrounds, all kind of differences and different viewpoints and different ideas, the only way we're ever going to be united is if we unite under the bloody cross of Christ. Again, we, we, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to keep ringing this bell. I'm telling you, Jesus weeps over the segregated church. Jesus died so that black people, white people, Hispanic people could gather together, united under the one banner of Jesus Christ. Because the world looks and says, that message is silly. And we say, no, no, it is the power and the wisdom of God. And it actually unites us, though we don't come from the same background, though we don't come from the same economic background, though we don't like the same type of music, we don't like to do the same type of things. All of that doesn't matter. We're united under the bloody cross of Christ. So he says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us, us. Believers, Christians gathered together in a local church, members of Gospel Community Church. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Okay, two thoughts on verse 18. I've already spent too much time on it, but y'all don't mind. First thought about uh, verse 18 is that there are two groups here. There's two groups in verse 18. There are those who are perishing and those who are being saved. There's no middle group church family. This is, we, we like to invent a middle group. Um, there are the Christians over here that are saved. Then way over here on this side are the atheists who hate Christians. And then right here in the middle is the people that are just indifferent and it doesn't really matter either way. Church family, there are those who are saved and there are those who are perishing. And there are no two ways about that. It, it's two groups and two groups alone. Jesus Christ is the only way that we are saved, and the people who are not saved are perishing. Amen. Now, 
it's interesting, he uses this idea of, of, of being saved. I thought that when you became a Christian, you were saved. So how is it that we are being saved? Well, church family, we're, we are sojourners, are we not? We, we are sojourners on a journey to the celestial city. We're, we're on a journey to uh, that great and final day when the Lord Jesus Christ uh, appears with the sound of a trumpet and all of his children are called to him and the new heaven and the new earth is unveiled and we live there forever with him. That's, that's our ultimate salvation. And so, yes, we have been saved by the cross of Christ. We have received power and wisdom through the cross. We are in the process of being saved because we're on the way to that, that great heaven, the new heaven, the new earth. Th think about it this way. We're in a lifeboat, church family. So, so the ship has sunk. <laughs> the ship has sunk, but we're in a lifeboat, which means we're saved. We're saved from the sinking ship, but we're not on shore yet. We're not on shore yet. We're not there yet. We're, we're on the way. We, we are sojourners. This world is not to be our home. We're on the way to our home, which is forever with Jesus. Man, this verse is so powerful. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The Apostle Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 1. Verse 16, he says it this way, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It, it, it's the power. You, you understand the cross is the power of God. The cross is the purchasing power of God. He purchased you. He ransomed you. You were dead. You were enslaved. You, you were under the authority of Satan. Do you know that about yourself? That's what you were. But the power of the cross has purchasing power. You were bought. You were ransomed with a price. That's, that's why it's called the power of God. That's why the cross is called the power of God. And for this very reason, if you're taking notes, we can never abandon the truth of a crucified Savior for a more marketable message. We can never abandon this truth. We, we can't take it and go, oh, man, it's, it's got sharp edges to it. Let, let's, let's, let's see if we can sand down those sharp edges. Let's, let's leave out the hell part. Nobody likes to talk about that. Oh, oh, and, and also, let's not talk about sin. You know, let's, let's talk about preferences or choices. No, no, church family. We must not sand off the jagged edges of the cross. We, we, we cannot remove the offensiveness. It is offensive. You're supposed to be offended. To tell somebody that they're a sinner is offensive, but they need to be offended so they see in themselves what they truly are. So that they discover that they need to be saved. Yeah. We can't abandon this message. We can't change it. We can't alter it. Gospel Community Church, we must stick together holding on to this great truth of a bloody cross. Offensive as it may be. It's our message. Now, Paul puts an exclamation point on verse 18 by, by quoting uh, from the Old Testament. He, he quotes Isaiah 29 uh, verse 14, look, look at our, our verse, verse 19, for it is written, again, quoting Isaiah, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning, I will thwart. He's, he's linking this with the Old Testament, basically letting us know that doing things in an upside down way, doing things in a counterintuitive way, that's always been God's way. God's always done that. Right? You, you, you remember Joshua in the Battle of Jericho? 
Um, he, he goes there. There's, there's the city. And God's like, all right, Joshua, you got this, man. This, this is your city. I mean, it's, you are going to like battle and it's going gonna, it's gonna to go down. Joshua's like, all right, I'm in. What do you want me to do, Lord? Uh, like build, build a trebuchet, get some catapults. We're going to, you know, like bomb the city with big rocks and then send our soldiers in. God's like, no, I don't want you to do that. Okay, okay, we're going to set it on fire, and when they come running out of the city, we'll chop them with our swords. God's like, no, I don't want you to do that. Joshua's like, what do you want me to do, Lord? Just walk around it. <laughs> walk around it, Lord? Yeah, just walk around it. Oh, um, and, and also blow some trumpets. <laughs> we're sieging a city, Lord, and you want us to walk around it and blow trumpets? Yep, that's exactly what I want you to do. That's the counterintuitive, the upside-down way of thinking. They walked around the, the, the thing, they blow the trumpets, and God makes the walls fall down. Who saw that coming? Right? It's counterintuitive, but it is the wisdom of God. And, and we look at it and we go, that, that just doesn't make any sense. But it makes sense to God. Because he's wiser, much wiser than, than we are. Verse 20, he, he then goes on this, this onslaught of rhetorical questions. Look at this, verse 20. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? We might say something like this. Where is the philosophy major? Where is the rocket scientist? Where is the molecular biologist? Right? That, we might say something like that as, as he's going on this, this tirade. The idea is, out of that group, who thinks they can go toe-to-toe -to -toe with God? Like, Give us your best philosopher. Give us your best scientist. Give us your, your most brilliant PhD. Send them on, and let's see if they can get one over on God. That's what he's saying. <laughs> it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Man's wisdom compared to God's wisdom. I mean, it's, 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 there's no comparison. You, you simply can't do it at all whatsoever. <clears throat> he says this has, in verse 20. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Church family, let's... The wisdom of the world says we don't need God anymore. Why? Because we have science. Science has explained it all, hasn't it? We, we, we were able to now explain God away. I mean, the old way of thinking was, you know, man was primitive and he had no idea how the world worked. And so we just said, oh, God did everything. But now that we're enlightened and we're intelligent and so smart, we don't need God anymore because we have science to explain everything to us. You see, we know that our expanding universe started with a big bang, and it just so happened that these conditions were able to produce life all by itself. An unguided force of natural law evolved humans into what we are today. We are here because of random chance and a really, really long amount of time. But when you ask the question to the world, when you ask the question to our society, how is it that a big explosion and an unguided force can create a finely tuned and insanely intricate universe. You tell me how. And then they say something that sounds really, really foolish. Because God has shamed the wise. God has shamed the wisdom of this world. You see, for all of our scientific and technological advances, are people better off? In general, no. Doctors are prescribing antidepressants and opioids at an ever alarming and increasing rate. For all of our technological advances, there is still crime, murder, theft, poverty, and inequality. 
You see, we, we can watch Netflix in a plane at 30,000 feet while texting our friend on the other side of the planet, but we cannot repair the brokenness in our own souls. The point is this, somebody can be absolutely brilliant. They can have a PhD from Harvard, Cambridge, Oxford, Yale, at the top of their field. They wrote the book. They teach all the other teachers. But it is totally pointless if they do not know, love, and serve the God of the universe that created and sustains them. If you're taking notes, you can jot this down. No matter how brilliant we think we have become, on the day of Jesus' return, we will discover how little we really knew. Technology can keep advancing. Medical science can keep advancing. And all along the world and our society, we'll, we'll just begin to pat ourselves on the back at how brilliant we really are. But when that trumpet sounds and the clouds are rolled back like a scroll and the Lord descends and calls his children unto himself, we will discover as a whole, as a planet, as a people, how little we really knew as God sets and makes all things right and all things new. Verse 21, we got to move. Verse 21, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. Did you get that? It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. God never intended for us to reason our way to him. Listen, I love apologetics. Apologetics is, is the study of the Christian faith, defending the Christian faith. I love apologetics. Um, it, I, I've read the books. I've been in the debates. I, I really love that. It, it's something that I think is incredibly helpful um, for Christians to know and, and help build our faith. But God's plan was never for us to reason our way to him. That was not his plan. God's plan is much more counterintuitive. Again, it's the upside-down way that God operates. It's the counterintuitive way God operates. He plans to see people saved, not by writing it in the sky. Wouldn't that? I mean, God just goes, all right, if you see your name up here, you're in. He didn't do that. He, he didn't say, okay, that one, hey, angel, come here. You see that one? That one's mine. I called that one. I, I want you to go, go, go let him know. And then the angel comes in with the trumpet, bah, 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 you know, the, the flashing lights. Hey, man, you won. You're saved. <laughs> no. Again, it, wouldn't that make more sense? It's like just to make it that plain, that clear? No, no. Here's God's plan. God's plan is to take incredibly weak, frail, and fragile men and put them on a stage, put them in a pulpit, and have them proclaim a message of a first century Galilean peasant who was put to death by crucifixion. That's God's plan. That's God's plan. God's plan to save people is to send somebody who is weak, broken, and fragile to a coffee shop to sit across the table from a friend or family member and tell them about the wonderful news of Jesus Christ and his death on a cross. That's God's plan. God's plan to save his children is to take weak, 
and broken and frail and fragile parents and have them kneel beside their beds of their children and read the scriptures with them and tell them the gospel as their children watch their parents struggle to live the Christian life and to follow Jesus. And and through that method, that's the way God's going to save. It's not writing in the sky. It's not sending an angel to blow a trumpet, swing a sword. It's, it's, It's lowly. It's weak. It's humble. That's that's what he's saying here in this verse. For since the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach. Don't Don't you understand, church family? That's why we put so much emphasis on preaching here. We we do two songs. We put the preaching right in the middle. We do two more songs. We put the preaching at the very center. We preach from God's word. Preaching is so important. We we believe it's important. Why? Because it is the method in which God has chosen to save. And we believe people can get saved through preaching. And that's why we preach. That's why it's important that when you go to a church, that there's somebody on stage that opens a Bible and proclaims the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You need that has to be at the center of the church. Verse 22. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. If you, if you, if you go back and read the New Testament, you'll, you'll see again and again and again the, the, the Sadducees and, and the Pharisees, they're constantly going up to Jesus and they're like, hey man, you know, sh- show us if, if you're the Messiah, prove it to us. We want to see a miraculous sign. Right? He kind of already did a bunch of those, you know, uh, the feeding of the 5,000, uh, healing, uh, you know, he, he kind of already done a bunch of that. But, but they just kept going back and back again and again and again, you know, kind of turning Jesus into the, you know, the genie in the bottle. You know, you rub the button, the genie pops out and, you know, grant my wishes. And, and, and so just look how Jesus responds and in Matthew 12, 38 through 40, then, then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. <laughs> Tell us how you really feel, Jesus. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. At this point, they're like, huh? Like a dog that heard a high-pitched whistle. Huh? He goes on to explain. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. You want a sign? I'll give you a sign. Here's the sign. I'm going to be crucified and just like Jonah went in the belly of the whale, I'm going to go into the tomb. And just like Jonah came popping out, I'm going to come popping out. There's your sign. They, they constantly were, were seeking from him uh, to, to give signs. That, that's what the Apostle Paul is, is saying here. Look, look at 22 again. He says, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. He's, he's dividing these two people groups and, and saying that this people group, the, the Jews, they're looking for miraculous signs from heaven, right? The Greeks, on the other hand, they're looking for wisdom. They want you to explain a logical, straightforward, rational argument, right? Uh, it's it's the, the difference between um, somebody saying, 
you know, if, if God will, will heal my granny or if God will heal me, then I'll believe in him. Versus this type of person over here that says, um, I, I need, I need a, a clear written down explanation before I believe, right? One person says, show me, like, show me. The other person says, explain it to me. So, so he's saying here that the, the Jews are seeking signs and the Greeks are, are actually seeking wisdom, some type of rational, plausible argument. Look at verse 23, though. But, right, no miraculous signs, uh, no, like, straightforward, what do they do? Verse 23, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. We preach Christ crucified. That's what happened. Jesus Christ lived the life we couldn't live, died the death we, could have, we shouldn't die, in our place for our sins, and by placing our faith on him, we might be saved. How many times have you heard me say that in this church? About 50 bajillion, and I'm going to keep saying it. And the elders of this church are going to keep saying it. We're just going to keep preaching Christ crucified. Now, again, is Paul, this is an important distinction, especially when you're looking at, at this section of text. Is Paul anti-intellectual? No. Absolutely not. The, the dude is monstrously brilliant. As a matter of fact, he walked into Athens, um, looked at their gods, and then went and, and stood right there and, and began to reason with them. So he's not anti-intellectual, but, but what he's saying is we're, we're not trying to dress this thing up. We're not trying to sand off the rough edges. We're not, we're not trying to not understand that it's going to be pointy. We, we, we're just accepting all of that. We're accepting Jesus Christ and him crucified, and we're just going to keep preaching it. That's, that's what he's saying. And, and what was it? But we preach Christ crucified. What was it to the Jews? A stumbling block to the Jews and folly to Gentiles. It was a stumbling block to the Jews. Again, because when they thought of Messiah, they thought of political war hero. There they were being oppressed by the Roman government. The Roman government was there. They had taken over Jerusalem. There was all these rules, things they couldn't do. They didn't feel free to worship. And so what the Messiah was going to do, he was going to come in and he was going to clean house. The Messiah was going to come in. He's, he's got a sword going on. He's riding a big war horse. He's chopping off the heads of Romans, driving them out of Jerusalem so that they can do their own Jerusalem thing. That's... But they didn't get that in Jesus, did they? If you're taking notes, Jesus did not come as a general on a war horse. He came as a carpenter on a donkey. That's so counterintuitive. That's so upside down. Jesus did not come to overthrow Rome's earthly kingdom. He came to defeat Satan's spiritual kingdom. It's, it's so upside down. It's so counterintuitive. It's so different than, than what you would have expected. But that's what happened. It was, it was a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, to the Greeks. The Greeks who loved oratory. The Greeks who loved to stand and debate. As a matter of fact, in, in Greek culture around this time, they, they didn't go to the movies, you know, of course, because they didn't have movies, you understand. But th what they would do is, you know, on a date night with you and your lady, you would go and you would watch the debates. And, and they, they would stand in, in, in the town squares. And, and, and the smartest, most attractive, most eloquent, that person would win the debate. 
And, and what does Corinth get? In comes the Apostle Paul. He's short. Uh, history tells us that he's balding. He has a crooked nose. Uh, he's bow-legged. And what he does is he begins to preach. But listen, this is the, this is the most, this is the craziest, this is God's wisdom, okay? He's not very good at preaching. <laughs> the most brilliant theologian next to Jesus, okay? I mean, this guy, you know, he, he, he writes a book, okay? He writes a couple of them books in there. He's, he's pretty smart. But the guy can't preach. Just look at, look at uh, chapter 2. And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech and wisdom, for I decided to know nothing uh, with, except Jesus Christ and him crucified in weakness and fear and in much trembling. The Apostle Paul's not standing on stage, pointing his finger, yell, you know, like I'm doing. He's, he's in weakness and fear and trembling. And the Greeks just didn't make sense. They're like, is there somebody taller who can teach us? Is there somebody a little better looking? Maybe somebody who's a little bit more eloquent and doesn't say as many ums as this guy does. It, it just, it, it didn't make any sense. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. Look at verse 24. But to those who are called. Just, this, this idea of, of being called, is, is, it's just a mega theme in this chapter. He just keeps talking about this effectual calling, the effective calling of God to where, to where we are predestined before the foundation of the world. And God sends out his gospel call to us and we're regenerated and we come to life in him. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks... Do you see how he's uniting them? He's uniting them in the power of the cross. You have these Jewish people over here, ethnically Jewish, that have these kind of rules, and they come from this kind of background. And you have this other people group, this other diverse ethnic group, which is kind of at odds with each other because they don't like the same things, they don't do the same things, they don't come from the same place. But he's saying, no, no, those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, be united in the bloody cross. Even though there's racial disharmony, even though there's racial disunity, even though there's racial strife and tension, we can be united because we're called by God together to be a family. Amen? Amen. This, is, this is amazing news. This is great news. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, we, 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 can, we can say this, but to those who are called, both black people and white people, both Hispanic people and, and Asian people, but to those who are called, all ethnic groups together, Christ, the power of God. Do you know how broke and messed up you were? Do you know how broke down, just raggedy you were? Do you know that about yourself? you, you got to know that about yourself so that you can see how powerful the cross is. That's how powerful the cross is. It can take somebody broken, messed up, dirty, downtrodden, jacked up, and it can make them whole again. It can make them a whole new creature, a whole new creation in Christ, clean, glorified, sanctified, a saint, justified before God, adopted into the family of God. That's how powerful the cross is. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and, and what else? The wisdom of God. 
That counterintuitive, upside-down way of thinking that, that God accomplishes his purposes through the weak and lowly things, not through the big and powerful things. That's the wisdom of God. And we get all of that in Christ. Verse 25, and then, then I'm going to be out of your hair. Here we go. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. M- meaning... Uh, <laughs> God on his worst day, which he doesn't have those. God on his worst day is still way, way, way better than you. (laughs) Way smarter, way wiser, right? Way more intelligent than the wisdom, the wisest in the world, is what verse 25 is saying. What he's concluding with here in this particular section in 24 and 25 is this, is the message goes out to all, and it's only the called that don't find it foolish. If you're here this morning and you look at that cross and you say, there's power there, there's wisdom there, I want to devote my life to Jesus. You know what that means? It means God called you. And if you're here today and you're like... I'm not sure if I'm a Christian. I don't know if I'm a Christian, but, but I'm interested in hearing more about that. that. That may mean that God's drawing you. He's calling you, come. You, you give your life to Jesus today. You surrender your life to Christ. You make that decision in your heart right now. I'm going to follow Jesus with my whole life because of what he did on the cross. That's what you can do. Well, church family, what are we to do with, with these verses here? What th- This is... Just astonishing. Again, I'm, I'm struggling to get over verse 18. I just, what are, what are we to do with these things, church family? Well, here's one practical application point that I want us to work with. One, build unity in the church by openly discussing your weakness and God's power. This church was so divided. They were so, they that this, this little camp was over here and they didn't like these people over here and these people were saying we ought to do this and they, they were so divided. And, and they thought that their way was the best way. They thought they had it all together. They knew what was going on and those people in the church over there, they're dumb. They don't know what's going on. We've got it under control. Instead of getting together and just openly discussing our brokenness and weakness. Art, listen. Aren't you tired of pretending like you got it all together? It's so exhausting. It's so exhausting just pretending like you've got it under control. It's so exhausting pretending like you're more spiritual than everybody else. It's tiring. Stop doing that. Just, just openly discuss. You know what? I, I wish I had a greater desire to read my Bible. There, I said it. I, I wish that I was more brokenhearted over lost people, but I find myself being callous. Just openly say that. Just be honest and say, you know what? And I'm praying that the power of the cross would help me see lost people and weep over them. You see, what this, what this text shows us and what this text tells us is that we never look at people who are lost and go, why don't they just get it together? Why, why, can't, why haven't they just come to the same conclusion that I have, that following Jesus is, makes the most sense? Well, because... God is the one that opened your eyes. You didn't reason your way to him. He took the scales off of your eyes. It's, it's like both of you were looking at the same thing, but God took the scales off of yours. And so what you should do for that person is pray for them that God would take the scales off of their eyes. You don't think you're better than them. You're not any better than them. 
Again, Jesus does it all. We're not bringing anything to the table. Yet, we get the power of the cross, the wisdom that's in the cross, and so we should praise him. Amen? Amen. And so I said it at the beginning, and I'll close by saying it again. Jesus does it all. He, he does it all. From beginning to end, the life we couldn't live, the death we should have died, in our place for our sins. He, he then sends the Holy Spirit to take the scales off of our eyes so that we can see how beautiful and glorious and magnificent he is. We bring nothing to the table. Jesus does it all. Yet, church family, this, this is where it gets crazy. Yet, we have received the power and the wisdom of the cross. Let's praise him. Let's praise him. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, how counterintuitive, how upside down, how backwards it is to our minds that you would send your son to be a lowly first century Galilean peasant and that your way to redeem your creation to save your people would be his death, his crucifixion on a Roman crossbar. How astounding, how astonishing, how foolish it seems to the world, but how wise it is to us, those who have been called, those who hold this teaching and this doctrine and this Savior dear. Oh Lord, I pray that Gospel Community Church would be a community of transparency, that we would begin to build unity in the church by openly discussing our weaknesses, not by boasting about how spiritual we are or how much of the Bible we've read or how long we spend in prayer or how much we give, how much. Lord, let us focus on you and the power of your cross. Oh, Lord, send your spirit now in a mighty way, in a powerful way to be among us Lord, those who have been struggling to keep up appearances, to pretend like they have it all together, Lord, would you minister to them even now? Let them know that it's okay to be broken because you're the one that heals. Let them know that it's okay to feel empty because you have come to fill us. Let us know that it's okay to be wounded because you're the one that heals. Minister that word by the power of your spirit now to our hearts. I ask this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Feel free to share the contents of this podcast, but please do not alter it in any way without permission. Please like, follow, and subscribe to us on Facebook or iTunes. Visit gospelcc.com for more content like this. At Gospel Community Church, our mission is to know the Bible, share life with others, and bring hope to our city and the world. Thanks again and have a blessed day.